0: Welcome everybody to a special episode of Boxes and Lines and a Happy New Year. Yo,
1: welcome to Boxes and Lines. Happy New Year.
0: Is that JR out there? It looks like JR speaking. It doesn't sound like him.
1: Uh, By special, I wanted to introduce people to a member of the IEX team, Jamie Abrahamson,
0: and she's going to be the host of this podcast today. And the interview is going to be about a topic that's pretty hot topic, uh, Hamilton, but a different side to Hamilton
1: than you've heard before. Jamie?
0: Thank you, Ronan and JR. Uh, I'm really excited after many conversations, both drunk and sober with my dear friend, Andy Kaplan. We've discussed the merits of Aaron Burr and perhaps some of the demerits of Alexander Hamilton. And I think this untold story needs some telling.
1: Well, it's a fascinating topic. And I will say, although it's hard for Ronan and me to yield the mic to anybody, because uh, you know we've gotten very enamored of hearing our own voices, um, this was a really good reason um, and opportunity to let somebody else take over.
0: I'd like to take a moment here and introduce our, our guest here, Andy Kaplan, a former partner at Greenlight, a contrarian by nature, historian by passion, cider maker by craft. I, I feel like that's a fair start.
1: Uh, Jamo, you forgot the, you forgot the <laughs> one part of my bio that I'm most proud of is that I was a desk analyst uh, at Lehman Brothers.
0: Oh, that's right. That's right. And you did serve time as a desk analyst, serve time as an equities desk analyst at Lehman I Brothers. I did. Andy, I think we should start by... The story you once told me of you actually going to see the play Hamilton and what it was that caused such a visceral reaction for you.
1: So, so I, I take it my parents as an anniversary present and I knew it was going to be a rough one for me. I promised my wife and I promised my parents I would sit there and uh, absorb the music and, and you know, listen to the show tunes and, and try to be, you know, just you know, productive and grateful to be there. So I, 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 but I knew it was an uphill battle and I I got as far as like the first four words of the thing where, um, where Burr, where Burr says something like, you know, talk less, smile more. I was like, all right, here we go. Uh, because that's kind of an, the implication is that that unlike Hamilton, Burr was this chameleon that didn't have a political view, and i have spent basically seven years of my life demonstrating that not only did Burr have a political view, but it's one that was be really, really sympathetic to us as modern Americans. And so, and I, but I thought I was being really good up until um, they said, um, "Oh God, Hamilton says something like." they don't have a plan. They just hate mine, which is don't get me started. But, but I, and I probably just said that I probably said, don't get me started. And the woman in front of me who unbeknownst to me had been really just hanging on by a thread this whole time with my like grunts and groans and sighs and exhalations and all that turned around in tears and, <laughs> and just like not even yelling at me, just like pleading with me that this was, that I was ruining what was going to, what was, she'd look for it as the greatest moment of her life. And I had ruined right. it completely. Perfect. Um, yeah. No, I, I'm a terrible human being. For those people who don't know me at home, I'm a terrible <laughs> human being.
0: I don't think that's true. Um, but I do think this is a good segue to kind of unpack the myth of Hamilton. So the commercial success of Hamilton, right? Celebrating Alexander and presenting him to a new generation as a transcendent figure laboring alone to build a better America against an army of self-interested cretins, Like maybe that's wrong. So what is the what is the myth of Hamilton?
1: So how did we arrive here? I, I I appreciate that setup. And I um the Hamilton myth today is, I think, very different than the Hamilton myth for most of American history. Ha- Hamilton is, I think we can all agree, is one of the important figures um, of you know among the founding generation. He was the most vocal and he left behind the 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 greatest record, and he had, you know, perhaps the most impact in his lifetime in terms of how he moved the needle in terms of what America looked like. So I don't think anybody's ever doubted that Hamilton was a, was an important figure in the founding of this country. I though know, he was, you know, decades younger than the other founding fathers. Um, uh, but during, for most of the last 200 years, say from the time of his death in 1804 um, to, you know, sometime, you know, in our kind of adult lifetime, uh, I think there was a clear view that Hamilton, while an important figure, was a very controversial one and represented a very extreme viewpoint in terms of the American spectrum of who we should be as a people and you know what I'm, what the American you know dream was about and what the, what that vision was. And if, if I could kind of paraphrase that, you know, you know really simply in a way that, that he would probably say is too simplistic, but, he, you know, most people agreed that he was the standard bearer for the idea of trickle down. This idea that um, that the way to build a great nation, the only way to build a great nation, is to um, to use the richest and most productive citizens as um, as as the army that um, that, that funded um, you know industrial growth. We should do everything we can to make sure that we. Um, funnel as much of the country's capital to those people and put it in their hands because they're the ones who will make the best use of it. And the ways we do that are number one, we give them kind of sweetheart insider deals, and this is the whole idea of you know the debt assumption and and all the giving the giving his cronies and all the all the. Um, you know, the early kind of merchants and industrialists, the ability to buy up for, you know, a penny or two on the dollar, all the debt had been issued during the revolutionary generation. We let them all have it. And then we recognize it at, you know, a dollar on a dollar and give them this huge windfall. And, and we create the national debt, which is, you know, kind of what the the play is like alluding to this idea of the assumption and all that. So we we, we do all that. And at the same time, we pay for that by uh, broad regressive taxation. Um, we, we, we tax um, consumption and we do um, the famous Hamilton whiskey tax, um, where we we take this the smaller producers, the small independent younger producers, and we tax them at a massively higher rate than we tax the the large users. With this idea that the only way for America to compete globally is to uh, to build these national champions, which are government supported and are, um, and are from from day one are kind of given these protected monopolies, so they can go out and America can compete in the world.
0: And so that's, but that's not how. Hamilton's view today. Somehow that got twisted. No,
1: well, I mean, I think m- m- not so much twisted as forgotten because I yeah. think a lot of the things that um, that an audience in, say, 1850 or even 1930 thought and knew about um, how the world worked, and how finance is kind of seems so arcane that it's been lost to us. I think there, for generations, the debates that that that, that, that the revolutionary generation had about you know the gold standard was was active and the evils of paper money and depreciating currency, those those are that's what they argued about. And that's what, in fact that's what the whole constitutional convention was about. If we have time, let's talk about what was the kind. Con- I mean, so we talk about the Constitution today. We, people people remember the First Amendment, which is what the liberals point to, and the Second Amendment, which is the conservatives point to. The Constitution wasn't about any of that. That was all a freaking afterthought, right? It, the Constitution was about. You know how do we prevent states from issuing depreciating currency and 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 you know not making good on debts and uh, and how do we how do we you know get you know build a national credit rating mean, the constitution is essentially a way to take democracy out of the hands of the states so that the federal government could have an army and could enforce tax collection and it's, it's basically what the purpose was and I don't think anybody would argue about it. And so those debates were really alive in say 1890 when, you know, William Jennings, Ryan, Brian, the populace rise and try to, you know, free the free us from the gold standard. And, you know, we, we're not going to be hamstrung and cross a gold and we're all going to, you know, the farmers are, are are pissed off because the Eastern bankers are demanding, you know, gold as repayment and they want to repay in silver. And, and even in 1930, when, you know, FDR takes us off the gold standard, but I mean, these are lively debates about, you know, what, what's, yeah. what should America be about? I think somewhere between then and now, all this stuff started to seem pretty quaint. I mean, you know, Nixon took us off the last of the Gold Center in 1971. A whole generation of people have grown up saying, that's quaint and cute, but it has no relevance to our lives. And we've all agreed paper money won, right? I mean, we are all we all use green pieces of paper that can be traded for other green pieces of paper, but that's about it. Right. Um, so I think a lot of the things that were politically so potent in his own day and through most of the American adventure ha- have become lost. So Hamilton as a figure who was, Lionized by his supporters, and his supporters were the robber barons. I mean, Vanderbilt loved, you know, and Jay Gould, and, and most famously, Andrew Mellon, you know, the Treasury Secretary through all the 20s. I mean, it's not, I mean, he didn't just wind up on the $10 bill by accident, it didn't just get printed that way. Right. I mean, his supporters had a conscious effort to say, this is the way we should be running our economy. And when the depression came and FDR wanted to go off the gold standard and do a lot of deficit spending and do the Tennessee Valley Project, there was this whole army of people that said, no, 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 this is not how Alexander Hamilton said to do it. And then Roosevelt comes into office and Roosevelt's like, we need a hero who's not this guy. And he takes he basically uplifts the, the Hamilton statue from the front of the treasury building and puts it out back. And he puts Albert Gallatin in front of those people who, you know, for 200 years have been saying who the frick is yeah. Albert Gallatin, but that's the guy who's in front of the treasury. I know who Albert Gallatin is. We can have a long conversation about that on, on, <laughs> no, our, on our next, on our next podcast, uh, but, uh, but, and you know, and so, so they they're looking around for a hero and they settle on Jefferson, right? So the Jefferson gets right. put on the nickel and he gets uh, the Jefferson Memorial built and, and all this other stuff, but this, but but these early revolutionary are, are important to the debate of who we are now and who we are in that generation. It's all lost today. So, so your point is today, how is Hamilton? I'm sorry, I know you're trying to draw me back to actually no, yeah. who, who we think of today. Well. I mean, the the debate on who Hamilton is was sort of never let go by the same army of people who are trying to make the case for a trickle down. You know, in so many other ways in our economy. I think, I mean, Robert Bork was a big Hamilton fan, right? I mean, the the people that that wrote the whole rewrote all the rules about antitrust that said as long as there's a consumer welfare standard and that we aren't raising prices. We should be allowed to monopolize industries I mean, this is the ghost of, of alexander hamilton so but there are all these people who are trying to reintroduce hamilton and make him this kind of transcendent figure in life and i think as time went on by the way they won the bait, a debate about antitrust and all this other and right. all this other stuff and similarly we lost like what were people so mad at him about so alexander hamilton was reintroduced to a new generation through a series of biographies. First by Richard brookheiser and, and then by and then the the one that the out one that that um, that that uh, that Miranda that Miranda came to to know as this figure that was it was pleasing to see him as this transcendent figure and it was easy to sell because nobody really remembered what the argument was about so he was you know he became Hillary Clinton's favorite politician he became Barack Obama's favorite politician. And you know you've got FDR and, and all these other guys rolling over in their graves because they say you know wait a minute what the what the heck were we fighting for I mean who who and and that gets into a bigger conversation about who is the Democratic Party today and who's their constituency but probably again beyond the scope of this podcast but but I think Miranda probably unknowingly because he's I think he's right. a, he's a you know more or less a centrist or, or liberal Democrat um, you know seized onto this consensus figure and this view of Hamilton as a founder of the nation without really having any meaningful awareness. Cause it, it certainly if all you'd read was the Turner biography and the Brookhiser one the other one, you wouldn't have any sense of, of who Hamilton was or, or what he really fought for or what, what he stood for. And that's, and that's kind of one of the things when you and I have talked about this, Jamie, that's so frustrating to me. It's like we've actually lost a lot of what made Hamilton a really interesting guy. I mean, I think the debate about Hamilton for most of those 200 years was probably what the debate would be like about Reagan today was, is he for real? Did he believe all this stuff because he really thought it would be great or was it just a way to make his, himself and his right. friends rich, right? And, and I, think it's, I think I think the, the two sides of the debate could be argued equally well. I think that there's merit to both sides. And I think on, on the side of the people saying that he was in it for because he really believed that was what had made England a great country, having the Bank of England and this, this, this big you know, deficit financing that could be drawn upon was what gave England the strong army and the, the, the ability to kind of go out and conquer the world from this tiny little island. And I think there, there's an argument that he believed it. On the other hand, the fact that he was cronies with William Dewar and, and you know, Bob Morris and, and the other you know got merchants of his day, all of whom were kind of kleptomaniacs and, and were robbing the treasury kind of blind while Hamilton was sitting there theoretically carrying out his financial plan argues that, you know, maybe, maybe not,
0: but all of this. So what you're saying is the actual interesting debate about Hamilton is completely lost as we paint him as this like architect of the American dream from nothing, from nobody fought his way up.
1: Let me, let me say first that I understand the impulse. Like we all live in 2021 America and we've all seen for the last decade or two, a couple of decades, how polarized we become as a society and how few things that we have or icons that we share in common. And we almost would seem like we have two separate uh, okay. venues for information we, we get our facts from different places and we have to increase and we have different facts, not just different interpretations of those facts. And so there's a hungering, you know, in, in a lot of it. I mean, look, on, on the extremes, there's a lot of anger and just like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, step on your head until you're dead but but in the middle there's there's a broad swath of the population. And I would say that the, you know, the mainstream Democratic Party probably has that. So the Republican Party today is probably, you know, not well represented by that because it's been, you know, more or less extreme views that have captured that in, in the last decade or two. But the Democratic Party, the party of you know Obama and Clinton and so on. Um, you have this, this hankering for a time when we had this shared perspective of what is America and how did we come to be and what are our shared values? And Hamilton's kind of a, it has, you know, or the, 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 the Baudelaire's version of Hamilton, right. you know, has become a symbol of that. Like here was a guy just laboring, you know, to bring America into being, and he created the treasury and the financial system. And I, I think people don't even really know what the, they're talking about when they say that they say, you know, he created the financial system, you know, I mean, what he what he what he what he labored to create was um the national debt. I mean, that was really that was the project that, that you know, his his um I, I don't know if people this is a little bit of an aside, but um I, I don't know if your people in today even know who Robert Morris was. Um do you do you know who Robert Morris um, was in the in the revolution? Should
0: generation? I lie or should I just say
1: the Ch- truth? Either, whichever is more entertaining, whichever would be funnier. I do
0: not know um who Robert Morris so is.
1: Robert Morris uh was um ran the country during the Revolutionary War. Um, he, was, uh, he was on the inside and the outside. He was the financier of the revolution. Uh, he, was, he was a wealthy merchant from Philadelphia that, that ran what was called the Bank of North America, which was the only bank in the country uh, during the 1780s after the revolution. And he also, um, he funded um, the Revolutionary War. And so and his, his price for doing that was that he also um, ran the treasury. He was in charge of all disbursements. So the army didn't get paid, nobody got supplied, not a single bill got paid unless Robert Morris said, we're gonna pay it. And the way he was close friends with Washington, but the way he, um, the way he set up the deal was um, he paid, he, he, he made payments into the Continental Congress in depreciated um, banknotes of the individual states, and then got paid back you know in gold backed and payments to the states. But um, he managed to, because of his reputation as a merchant, attract the loans from, from France and from Holland that, that sustained the Continental Army during the years when the war seemed hopeless. And he came out of the war in a position of, you know, enormous strength. And he was actually Washington's choice to be Treasury Secretary after the, you know, Morris was the one that, that right. was most responsible for pushing for the, for the um, Constitutional Convention. Uh, but but so, so Bob Morris um, was, uh, was Hamilton's mentor. Uh, and he was, uh, as Washington's you know, closest friend, and you know, as we all know, Hamilton, um, you know, early on as a teenager became an aide to Washington and became indispensable to him throughout the war. And then in later life, um, he, he rose with Washington in, into power. Uh, Hamilton learned everything he knew about finance from Morris, and Morris was just trying to get paid back in gold. He was trying to make right. sure that there was no other access to credit other than his.
0: So before we move on to the counter narrative of Burr, not only- not not having an opinion but having an opinion and probably the opinion that most people today would agree with it's probably the most popular of all the um opinions that were out at the time but before we get into that so just to summarize hamilton is like it's easy to cancel everyone right like you were saying i think you were getting to it's easy cancel culture to just look back and and, and want to tear down every icon. And that's not what we're here to do. And you can debate Hamilton and talk about the perhaps selfish motives or perhaps um, genuine yeah. motives to his opinion. But neither of those are actually what's right. discussed today or how he's remembered. Right. That,
1: that's, that's my only point. That's the that point. The Hamilton of today, bears no resemblance right. to the Hamilton that we really should be Honoring, worshiping, and that was the Hamilton who probably genuinely had some fears, as Byrd did as well. That in the 1780s, the U.S. was militarily weak and vulnerable. The English could have come back; they they never really completely left. Uh, We had great difficulty enacting fair trade. Uh, The French, after the Revolution, were an unknown quantity. They could have come back. The Spanish Empire, which had Mexico, could have come back. And the, the the urgency. Uh, that, that Byrne Hamilton shared about making America a, a strong enough nation that we couldn't we couldn't go go back to the, the situation we were in prior to the Revolutionary War, was probably his animating force. And, and the ways he went about that, you know, including, you know, uh, in, in the famous thing that you certainly wouldn't know if you'd read the Eternal biography or watched the play, that in 1783, he and Morris worked together with General Gates. To uh, threaten and possibly carry out a, uh, a military coup uh, in order to um, to get uh, Bob Morris's bonds paid, uh, you know, it shows the lengths that he was willing to go to, how, how much he believed in the cause. Because I, I, I mean, I, I whether whether he was bluffing or not, whether he would actually have been happy with a military coup or not, I mean, the, the fact remains that that Hamilton tried to engage Washington in a military coup and Knox. And failing to get either of those, he cut a deal with Gates, where we came within a whisper of, you know, the the, arm, the officer corps of the army in 1783 in Newburgh, which was still completely armed, but hadn't been hadn't had their debts paid in four years. Morris refused to pay their debts unless they tied themselves together with his own debt that he was trying to get the uh, federal government mm-hmm. to assume and tried to entice them uh, to to uh, to to march on uh, to march on philadelphia and throw the continental congress into the river i mean that that hamilton that's a guy that i want to have a beer with
0: right right <laughs> that's well said um so what is the counter narrative what what is the burr that i think there's like that line right where they're like all sitting around the table just about to drink and they're like give us a verse burr drop some knowledge (laughs) and he goes on and says nothing they're like you're the worst burr so what what would burr actually say in that moment when they were asking him what the hell he was thinking
1: um burr was i was I mean? If you so so first of all, who was Burr? He was you know he was a contemporary of Hamilton's. They they you know grew up at the same time. They were in very similar situations. They were both um, you know abandoned at young ages. Burr was orphaned at, at two or three, and, and so you know he came to um, to New York uh, as Hamilton did as as a young man after kind of kind of heroic exploits in the Revolutionary War, but as an unknown and had to kind of build and make his reputation. Uh, I think by temperament and then by political career. He was actually a, a fairly loyal soldier with the emerging opposition party to the Federalists, which became the Democratic Republicans. Um, you know, if you look at his voting record in the Senate, uh, 1791 to 97, and his, his record in the New York State Assembly, where he served six terms, I think at various points, his, his record was always, let's expand the franchise. Let's give the vote to more people. Let's shorten the path to citizenship. Let's make credit available to places where it hasn't been before. Let's start other banks. Uh, let's find uh, merchants, artisans, and uh, and you know what they call journeymen or or uh, or uh, or you know people that work in blue collar trades, and find a way to get those people credits. And let's remove as much as possible the barriers to those people becoming. Entrepreneurs themselves. That was his political philosophy. That
0: sounds like a character that Lin Manuel would want to play if he was writing a screenplay about this. You
1: would think. <laughs> you would think. Too bad. Yeah. Uh, too bad. Too bad. He and I weren't hanging out at the right? same cocktail parties God. in 2012. You were
0: spending too much time at Lehman Brothers. I dope. was. I
1: was. Uh, I, was <laughs> I was busy. I was busy. You know, shorting right. Sandisk at 71. Oh. Um, but um, right. I, I, and, and the, the so Burr's the, this, the, this... the context of the time was I think we all we were all aware there were no political parties in the Constitution. there was no awareness of that. but fairly quickly, you know around the time of the constitutional convention we had two groups. we had the Federalists who wanted the Constitution and generally supported um, you know, you know regressive <laughs> taxation and, and hard money and, and gold standard and all that. anyway, the anti-federalists, who, but they anti-federalists weren't um, weren't of one stripe. There were anti-federalists who were, right. um, you know, working class who were kind of what we would think of as you know progressive or laborites today, mm-hmm. and those were mostly found in the north. And in the south, we had anti-federalists who were basically sympathetic to the federalist idea that we don't want the wrong people getting the vote. I mean, we definitely want to keep power, and, and we don't want too much democracy. But we also don't want strong centralized authority taken away from the states. and Because in the, in the case of the South, obviously, there was you know, great concern that the economic engine of right. the North was industrial and trade driven, where the industrial engine of the South was agrarian slave driven. And so from a very early period, um, there was you know, an uneasy alliance to be had between the Southern uh, southern Democratic Republicans and the Northern so, you know, we come, the constitution is a done deal. You know, Burr is against it, um, but, uh, you know, as, you know, he and his colleagues realize they, they kind of come to terms with reality after Virginia ratifies as the 10th state, New York is the only holdout among the sizable states. And they just said, all right, well, let's kind of make the best of this. So Burr is, you know, clearly, a, you know, anti-federalist. Um, but, you know, the political system evolves. Washington's the president. And within a couple of years, uh, you know, a cohesive, um, uh, opposition party emerges with Jefferson, sort of the leader of it. Um, you know, fast forward to 1796, 1797, Washington decides he's not going to run for a third term. He's you know, he's pretty sick and he's committed to going back to his farm and trying to salvage his, you know, miserable finances. Um, he's managed to squander his wife's fortune, but, uh, in land speculation, the land bubble is collapsing and, you know, Robert Morris is about to wind up in debtor's prison, but yeah, you know, another, another story, but, um, but, um, but election 17, 1796 happens, and it, it goes completely on uh, sectional lines. The North is um, completely Federalist and votes for Adams. The South is completely Democratic-Republican, votes for Jefferson. Uh, Electoral college um, 7165 for Adams. And um, uh, Jefferson has nominally taken on Burr, who is the, the most notable Republican north of the Mason-Dixon, as a running mate but sort of screws him when it comes down to electoral votes, doesn't, um, you know, doesn't, doesn't you know, get him supported in Virginia as the vice presidential nod. And anyway, Jefferson himself winds up in, a, in his constitutional accident um, as, as the vice president under, under uh, Adams. Fast forward to 1800, and it looks the same. Not, nothing's really changed. Jefferson is looking at an electoral map that looks the same as 1796. The North votes for, uh, for Adams, the South votes for Jefferson. When Burr comes and visits them and says, "You know, not for nothing, but I've I've kind of done some done some arithmetic here, and I think if we could flip New York, um, is the one state that's turnable, and the election turns on that. And New York, unlike some other states, doesn't have direct voting for president. The, the New York State Assembly votes for the election, votes for the president. And right now, John Jay is the is the governor, and Hamilton's party, the Federalists, control the assembly." But I think if you turn me loose for, you know, for a minute, I, I think I could, I think I could make something happen. Uh, but my price for that is you can't screw me again. You can't abandon me. You have mm-hmm. to actually deliver the South electoral votes for me. And I want to succeed you. I want to be the fourth president after you're the third president. Jefferson says, okay, I got no choice, you know, let's, right. let's do it. Uh, and then it gets interesting. Um, you know, Burr, as we've said, his philosophy as a politician is all about expanding credit, uh, bringing you know immigrants and you know working class and 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 manual laborers into the political coalition. Uh, but you know, as the New York State laws stand in 1800, you can't vote for the assembly unless you're a property holder. Um, I think it's 200 shillings or something, some some amount of money that you basically don't have unless you unless you own uh, unless you own your own business. Um, so Burr looks around and says, "Got some time on my hands." I'm a pretty good lawyer. I'm going to, um, I think New York needs fresh water. Uh, we all agree that, that, uh, every year and a half or so, New York is hit by a yellow fever epidemic because we're drinking this fetid water off of canal street. It's just sitting there out in a, in a trough and we're all, uh, mosquitoes are, mosquitoes are feeding on that. And, and we're, we're all kind of dying and heading for the Hills. What if uh, I, I concoct a plan to get fresh water from the Bronx river or uh, up in Westchester down to New York city? Uh, I'm going to, um, I'm going to the state to charter a new company called the Manhattan Company to bring water to uh, to Manhattan so people stop dying of yellow fever. Um, it's not easy to do. Chartered corporate charters weren't given out easily in those days. Certainly in Hamiltonian New York, they weren't given out at all because this idea was that we want to keep the existing companies have the monopoly rights over everything. There's only right. one bank, the Bank of New York, which Hamilton you know controls. Uh, is a a branch of the the federal national bank. The only people they can get credit are good federalists, which is why the federalists have used the bank for patronage, is why they control the the state politics. Burr sees all this and says, um, yeah, but we really need this uh, fresh water. And I'm going to get this charter passed because I'm going to bring in Hamilton himself and Hamilton's brother-in-law and some of the leading federalists. And, you know, I'll be on the board and some of my cronies, the Burrides will be, I'll bring in the Livingston faction. I'll bring in the Clinton faction. He gets everybody to agree to this thing, which we need fresh water in New York. He gets the thing chartered. Uh, Burr says, I'm a lawyer. I'll handle writing the writing the details of what the, what the company charter should be. And the company charter is we're going to bring fresh water from Westchester. And by the way, if we have any extra capital at the end, we can use it for anything we want. Huh. Um, Hamilton, maybe he's distracted. Maybe he's just, um, who knows? We'd, right. Hard to say exactly. Or may, uh, The reality is Hamilton's been cut on the deal. And so is his brother-in-law and they're going to make a ton of dough from this thing. So it doesn't really ask any questions. Burr gets the thing chartered and he, um, long story short, there really never was a, uh, <laughs> there really we never got fresh water in New York. People kept dying from yellow fever for quite some time. But uh, Burr used the uh, for any any purpose deemed appropriate to uh, to make the Manhattan company into a bank and he started making loans small loans precisely calibrated to be the amount of property you'd need to hold to vote in the New York State assembly uh-huh. elections to uh, to people in New York City because that that was what the Federals controlled and that was that was the swing that, that was where were the swing voters wow. were and so um, he he makes these loans you know hundreds of them Hamilton you know, doesn't complain, can't complain because he's making a ton of money off of this thing. Um, incidentally, the Manhattan Company still exists to this day. Um, it uh, it never really did build a uh, build a water supply. But if you look at the, um, the logo of the Chase Manhattan Bank that is now part of JP Morgan and you see the interlocking four like funny looking wooden things, those are the wooden pipes that were from Burr's Water Company.
0: Wow. Became, yeah. So <laughs> what you're saying is, there should be a statue of Burr down here somewhere perhaps around that charging bull.
1: And
0: that not only did Burr have an opinion, but like we were saying, like, this is pr- probably if explained correctly, if this is all true, this is the opinion that people would want to celebrate.
1: Well, some people would, I mean, I think there's a lot of people that would, if they knew the real Hamilton would say, no, that's, that's who we should celebrate. But I think right. there's, but, but I think there's a big part of the population that's that's really doesn't have a hero from the revolution generation right. and Burr as somebody who was a military hero from the revolution who actually, you know, had friendships in, you know, in all because all the other all the other military revolutionary heroes besides him were, were federalists. He had friendships across the board, but he had a political point of view as a New Yorker and as somebody who came here as an orphan that, that didn't have any kind of political base here but rose through, you know, hard work and good luck, um, you know, to, to having this law practice and, you know, partnering with Hamilton actually in the hmm. 1780s and then uh, rising to the Senate, you know, honestly, a little bit more due to Hamilton's blunderings and his own success. Hamilton's uh, father-in-law, Philip Schuyler was the Senator from New York. And, uh, and when, um, when Washington, um, you know, took office, um, uh, Schuyler expected to serve for, for quite some time, but, but Hamilton, um, uh, managed to cut um, the politically most powerful family, the Livingston family, out of um, the spoils from Washington's administration. Even though you know Livingston had been a general in the, in the army and, and one of Hamilton, and decided he was so he was so mad at, at being left out of patronage, so embarrassed to have his family cut out of the patronage, um, you know, from the that he was going to throw his support along along with Clinton to some compromise candidate that nobody knew and, and nobody cared much about, but a guy named Aaron Burr, and that's how we got Aaron Burr. And that's honestly that's that's the, the root of. Why, why Hamilton hated Burr so much? Right. It was this this the fact that that Ham that Burr stepped into this breach
0: and took Philip It was number Schuyler's. one, and
1: and then number two, obviously, was was the um, was getting getting outmaneuvered in this election of eighteen hundred, where you know Hamilton was the leader of the party, and he he, he ran the slate of candidates that Burr uh, and his army slaughtered. You know when when he, when all the grateful new voters who had loans from the Manhattan Company voted. The, the Hamiltonians out of office and, and turn New York, um, to, to, um, to Republicanism and got Jefferson And that th- those two things, um, you know, Hamilton never forgave him for, and then it was only a matter of time before they, uh, before they, it, came, it came to the end of did.
0: Wow. Um, so I guess the final question maybe should be, wh- what do we miss? Right. So what is it that we lose or miss if we don't look at this f- at the full picture?
1: Well, um, the founding fathers I think is have I, I think you know, when i when I was growing up we, we had a picture of them as being almost not human, almost like right. these Olympian gods that just didn't have human impulses and instincts they they were never self-interested they were somehow they were all just looking back to these like Greek and Roman models of democracy and you know there were these enlightenment figures that that were 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 so looking to their you know, place in history and the consciousness of their place in history, that they weren't even human. And I think, um, you know, I think there's some value to to, to teaching that as an an American myth. But I think it's so far from the world we know and the the, the reality of who people are in politics and who, who people have been at any point in life, that I think looking at them in that way, we lose something really meaningful. We lose the connection to their humanity that makes them people that we can understand and relate to. And and if we're really expecting ourselves to follow in the footsteps of the founding generation in terms of who we are and how we kind of carry forth the American dream, this idea that we look at them as somehow Olympian and otherworldly and not like us, I think really works against us and not for us in terms of building the American dream.
0: Um, I think that makes a lot of sense. People are allowed to make mistakes. They're not supposed to be perfect.
1: And, and they're allowed to have self-interest and this idea of balancing your self-interest. And, you know, the, I think the beauty of the American system for, for 200 years was, you know, it's like the Adam Smith, like Invisible Hand, self-interested parties working on opposition, making their case is what kind of built, built America. I mean, this idea is this clash of ideas and ideals at different sides, you know, one side won and then the other side won. I mean, I think from the right. 1870s to the 1920s, this the laissez-faire capitalism won from the 1930s to the 1970s, the, the New Deal, you know, kind of social democracy right. one, there was like a war of ideas. And on each side, you know, there were there were people that were testing, you know, what was right or wrong. And there was a, there was an opposition to it. There wasn't consensus at any point. I mean, I think, but it, it, at certain points, one side had the better argument. Than another, and the founding fathers were the same generation. And you asked me this, you asked me this earlier, like, do we live in Hamilton's world or Burr's world? And one of the things we, that came up in that conversation is I think, you know, quite, um, you know, uh, surprisingly, given that Burr is a forgotten figure, we live in Burr's world. I mean, think about that. Think about the Hamilton financial system and who Hamilton was. You know, Hamilton believed in this English system of rigid class stability, right? Of concentrated wealth, uh, inherited privilege, of um, monopoly power in, in corporations, protected monopolies, and government using its invisible hand to weigh down on the one side and, and to prevent competition and on the other hand of pushing up and, and favoring those who were kind of politically connected to kind of build, to build strong. And, and that, I I've said that in a way that sounds like, you know, super negative, but I think in the context of 1787 or right. 79 where we were, it made all the sense in the world. But I think if we look at the totality of like, how did America evolve and what, what did America wind up being, you know, just like England or did it wind up being something different? I, I think the answer we'd all, we'd all agree is, what was great about America from, you know, when Tocqueville came here in the 1830s is it was it was very different. The average person here was way more educated, way more involved in politics, had access to capital, had entrepreneurial spirit. And that American dream from that time has had its ups and downs for sure. But if we look into what even into our own generation, what we all admire most about America is this idea of, of social mobility, of people who could come from anywhere, people who are immigrants or people from you know, great poverty were often, you know, the, the drivers of the American dream, their vision and their, you know, strength added diversity and that diversity added you know, power. And we wouldn't be who we are today. We wouldn't have surpassed so many of these models in the past if we hadn't been willing to kind of take this kind of burr approach of democratizing finance, of putting more power and capital in the hands of where great ideas can come from anywhere.
0: Um, I think that's, that's probably it. Andy, I, we're so there's so much more because there's this whole life of Aaron Burr that happens after this. Um, and the, he did, he went on, you told me he lived in France and he came back and he, yeah he moved out West, but there's just almost too much to do, but it's, it's.
1: So this will now be a 16 part series. <laughs> Please come back tomorrow.
0: <laughs> we're so grateful. We're so thankful for you. I think this is so interesting and I think it's, an important thing for folks to remember, I think actually there's a quote, right? I think um, Lynn Manuel Miranda said, "History is entirely created by the person who tells the story," and that's what we have here. We have a version of the story, and it might not be the right one, but it's become history.
1: Thanks, Jamie. Thanks. Thank. <laughs> thank grateful
0: thank. for you <laughs> and your beautiful mind.
1: Thanks for giving me. <laughs> <go ahead. laughs>
0: and your time at Lehman Brothers as a desk analyst <laughs> with your terrible shorts. <laughs>
1: My shirts were terrific. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Jamie. I hope we get to do it.
0: Oh, thank you. All right. Bye, everyone. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational and educational purposes only. And IEX Group Inc. and its affiliates do not make any representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a solicitation or offer to buy or sell any securities or provide any investment advice or service. Some portions of the preceding conversations may have been edited for length or clarity. Copyright IEX Group Inc. All rights reserved.